The Roman historian Tacitus described Emperor Nero's persecution of first century Christians in this manner. Here's how he described it. He said, in their very deaths, he's talking about Christians, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Now, what was it that these people found so compelling about Christ that they would rather die such gruesome deaths rather than recant their allegiance to him? What was it? What did they know that a simple glance, I think, at lethargic American Christianity in the 21st century would suggest that we don't seem to know? What did they know? Why are there so few people in churches today who profess belief in Christ um, but don't live with that kind of conviction? Why so few? Why so few people who live great, noble, big lives? What is it that we're missing that those people seem to understand? here's, Here's my theory. Here's my theory. I think the reason that there are so few people who live those kinds of lives is that we don't understand uh, Christianity. We don't understand the gospel. And as a result, we don't find Christ very compelling, certainly not compelling enough to give our lives for or to even give our money for or even to give our weekends for or even to give just our Sunday mornings for or anything else. See, I think, and this is true, I think, at least in my experience with churches, Uh, Most people think Christianity is like other religions. There's a God to believe in, and there's some rules to obey. And if you don't obey those rules well enough, uh, if you do obey them well enough, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be punished. And as a result, see, what happens is that because most Christians think that way, they never experience the power of the gospel that can bring the dead to life. The power of the gospel that could cause a person to want to live a huge life. A huge life for Christ because he's given their lives such profound meaning and purpose. They never experience the power of the gospel that causes a person to want to shout Christ's name uh, from the rooftop. They never experience the power of the gospel that, that, that causes a person to wake up in the morning and the first thing on your mind is Jesus. The power of the gospel that causes people to rather be burned as a tiki torch rather than recant their faith in Christ because he is as real to them as the end of their nose. And I would just ask you, have you experienced that kind of profound uh, power of the gospel? Has that been your experience with it? Yeah, I don't think most Christians really understand the gospel. I mean, I think they understand enough to be Christians, but I don't think they understand the power of the gospel enough to live with that kind of conviction. Well, we're in a series, uh, some of you may know, we took a break for the last two weeks, but we've been in a series on the first half of the book of Mark. And, and, and what we're trying to do in this series is to see, we want to see what those people saw in Jesus, Okay? And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, 
uh, what, what Jesus wants us to get, he wants us to understand that his message is absolutely and utterly different than every other religion in the world. It's not like other religions. It's absolutely and utterly different. And in fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to just point you to three contrasts between religion and the gospel of, three, of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, three differences between man-made religion and the message of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. If you understand this, if you really get it, it will turn you into the kind of person who is so deeply and profoundly transformed that you can't help but live a life of greatness. If you get it, if you understand it, if you let it sink in, if you take it deeply into your life, you will be so transformed that you can't help but live a life of greatness. So turn in your Bibles this morning. If you have an old school, uh, if, you kinda, if you roll old school and you like the, you know, the hard copy of the Bible, turn in that to Mark chapter 2. If you've got a digital version of the Bible, find Mark chapter 2. We're going to start reading in uh, verse 13 in just a moment. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Mark's been allowing us to see how Jesus' fame has spread very quickly. But what we're going to begin to see this morning and in the weeks to come is that the opposition to Jesus' message by the religious establishment is increasing just as quickly. So I want to start reading uh, from verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus uh, went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, I want you to write this down. We're going to pause there. I want you to write this down somewhere. Here's a difference between religion and the gospel, and we see it right here. Religion is about humanity searching for God, okay? Religion is about humanity searching for God. The gospel, on the other hand, is about God searching for humanity, even those who are deemed most unworthy, okay? So let me say it one more time. Religion is about humanity searching for God, reaching for God, striving for God. The gospel, though, is about God searching for humanity, even those who are deemed most unworthy. Uh, A number of years ago, I bought a a house from a guy who would buy old houses and he would fix them up and then then he'd flip them, right? Okay. Uh, It was a very foolish move on my part. I'll just tell you this. You don't need to come up and remind me of this after the service. You don't need to send me an email to remind me of this. It was a foolish move on my part. Just say that, foolish. Just say it, foolish. You don't have to say it again now, okay? Uh, Believe me, because I've said it to myself about 3,000 times, all right? It was a foolish move on my part, but I elected not to have the house inspected. And I just trusted this guy that he'd done everything he he said he did. Right? Stupid. I know it. I know it. It was stupid. Okay? Not long after we moved in, it became very clear that he had not done all of the work necessary, and the house was essentially worthless in its present condition. So whatever, all the money that I put into the house to buy the house, uh, I, I, I essentially had lost. The roof was bad. The foundation was bad. The plumbing, the electrical was bad. And all of our savings uh, were really, for the most part, gone. I tried talking to the guy. I tried sweet-talking him. I tried threatening him. I tried everything. I even pulled the pastor card. Dude, you, you don't want to do this to a pastor, do you? Uh, nothing worked. He didn't care. He, pastor, Pope, it didn't make any difference to him who I was. He was fine with that. Uh, I finally had to contact an attorney. For seven years... 
For seven years, I had to chase this man around the legal system before I finally was able to corner him and get restitution. It took seven years. And more than once, uh, I was advised to give up. Many times, it, it seemed absolutely hopeless. And during the whole time, our house was falling apart around us. Anybody, anybody here old enough to remember the movie uh, uh, the, Mon- the Money Pit? You remember that movie? Okay, that was my life, okay? That, except there was no humor. I mean, it was, it was, it was horrible. Uh, and, and here's the thing. This guy couldn't have cared less. He had, he had no conscience whatsoever. Now, here's why I tell you that story. I want you to understand that this is the kind of scumbag that Levi was. No conscience whatsoever. Despicable. And the Jewish people hated him, and they hated other tax collectors like him for it. See, Levi was a Jewish guy, but he had sold out to uh, the Roman government to uh, essentially collect exorbitant taxes on the Jewish people as they did business. And as if that weren't enough, the exorbitant taxes, uh, he added additional taxes to the exorbitant taxes so that he could line his own pocket. So here's what I want you to understand about Levi. Levi, in this scene, is not looking to get religious. Levi's not searching for God. Levi isn't interested in cleaning his life up. Levi is perfectly content to keep stealing from the poor, to give to Caesar, and to give to himself. But uh, Jesus goes in search of Levi. Make no mistake, Jesus didn't just happen to see, G, uh, to see Levi. Jesus was there for the purpose of finding Levi. Jesus was walking where he was walking intentionally. And all he says to Levi is, is two words. Two words. Follow me. Okay. He doesn't say, Levi, clean your, life up, uh, clean your life up and follow me. Levi, make amends to all the people that you've stolen from. Shape your life up, Levi. Stop being so despicable and follow me. Levi, stop being a thief and follow me. All Jesus says to him is, follow me. And suddenly, Levi the scumbag becomes Levi Jesus' disciple. Scandalous, isn't it, that Jesus would call a scumbag like Levi to be one of his disciples. That is scandalous. And yet, here, here's the thing. Levi's response to Jesus, uh, to Jesus' call, makes me wonder if some of those people that Tacitus wrote about in the first century, who would rather be burned at the stake than recant their love for Jesus, makes me wonder if they weren't people uh, just like Levi people at the lowest rung of society whom no one else and certainly no respectable religion would want. But Jesus, Jesus wanted him. Jesus wanted him. And I would just, let me challenge you uh, as we think about this, okay? Just challenge you with this. That perhaps there's a correlation between recognizing your unworthiness and the level of devotion that you have for Christ. So like maybe there's this connection between, you know, the person who recognizes, look, nobody else would want me other than Jesus. But he wanted me. 
maybe, maybe there's some correlation between how much of that sense of unworthiness you have and the amount of devotion that you have for Jesus Christ. You see, this is what I want you to get, is that the gospel, the gospel's not about man searching for, Levi wasn't searching for God. Levi, Levi couldn't pull his life together. Religion says, no, you know, Levi, you got to get it together. You got to go home. You got to stop stealing from people. You got to, you know, you need to shape your life up. You need to go make amends to people. Maybe make a trip to Mecca. Do whatever you got to do, but get it together, and then you're worthy. Not the gospel. The gospel says, follow me. Follow me. And maybe, maybe once you get that, that you can't ever be good enough. Um, maybe once you understand that, no matter how respectable you are, no matter how low uh, you are, neither person, neither person could ever merit a relationship with God. That's, see, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. I want you to see that Levi not only follows Jesus, but I want you to watch what happens next. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, the text says, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat? with tax collectors and sinners. Now here's the second difference, and then I'm going to explain it. Here's the second difference between religion and the gospel. Here it is. Religion creates barriers between people. Write that down. Religion creates barriers between people. The gospel, on the other hand, destroys barriers between people. Religion sets up, it creates, it erects barriers between people. The gospel destroys all barriers uh, between people. Understand that what the Pharisees were concerned about here was just this, contamination, contamination. See, Judaism in that day had become all about, um, well, it had become all about sin avoidance. It wasn't about love for God, it wasn't about love for neighbor, it wasn't anything like that. It was about sin avoidance. And by the way, that is always a sign that regardless of what a church says that it believes about Jesus, if sin avoidance is the main emphasis, if it's all about what you don't do and who you don't hang with and and all the stuff you're supposed to stay away from, if the church says it believes in Jesus but sin avoidance is its main emphasis, it's not a church that is living and that believes the gospel. Okay, understand that. For the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Israel, the idea was that just as uh, physically unhealthy people can contaminate another person with their sin. You got the flu, you give it to this person, you know. Uh, and think of some other illness. You got a cold, you give, it, you, give, uh, you, you give a cold to another person. Okay, just as a, as a physically unhealthy person can contaminate another person with uh, uh, their germs, so a morally unhealthy person can contaminate another person with their sin, okay? Which is why these guys ask, why does he eat with these people? Why does he get so close to rubbing shoulders and elbows with these morally impure people? He's going to be defiled. He's going to be contaminated by them. See, the Pharisees wouldn't ever get close enough to those kind of people to eat with them unless they could wear like hazmat uniforms, you know, and, and that's the only way that they'd be around those kind of people. What does Jesus say to this? Watch this. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, 
It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus uses a metaphor to help him understand. He says, I'm the doctor of your soul. I'm the doctor of your soul. You're, you're sick. You're sick spiritually. You're sick psychologically. You're sick emotionally. Okay? And at first, when you read this metaphor, well, this makes perfect sense. Sure, a doctor doesn't come to heal the, the, the people who aren't sick. He only comes to heal the people who, who are sick. But then, if you think about this metaphor just another minute, it seems like this metaphor will fall apart. Okay? Because if you think about think about this. Okay? If a doctor wants to help people with Ebola, he or she just can't simply hang, hang out with people who have the Ebola virus because he or she will die. And then they won't be able to help anyone. Okay? And of course, this is precisely what the Pharisees are concerned about here. It's why they would never hang out with these people. Okay? Because they're, they're going to be contaminated. And, and they're saying to Jesus, you're going to be contaminated uh, by these people. Okay? That's what they're concerned about. And it seems like the metaphor doesn't work. But then, just when you think his metaphor won't work, you realize not only does it work, but Jesus bursts the banks of the metaphor. Why? Okay? Here's why. Because throughout all of history, when the infected comes into contact with the clean, the clean becomes unclean. All of religion is based on that principle. You work very hard. You work very hard to become good. You work very hard to be good enough for heaven. And if you're going to be good enough for heaven, uh, you have to stay away from the defiled. You have to stay away from the immoral. You have to stay away from the people who are unclean. But look, Jesus says in this passage, he says, look, you, you can't make me unclean. My holiness will overcome your sin. I'm not just another religious leader telling you that by obeying the rules, uh, you can make yourselves fit for God. I make you fit on the spot. When you come into relationship with me, Jesus says, infection itself begins to work in reverse. The clean begins to infect the unclean with cleanliness. And you see, this is the reason why when you come into, a contact, uh, into a, a, a contact with Jesus... It completely changes the way in which you relate to the world. Completely. It's a completely opposite dynamic from every other religion. Okay? Understand something. Religion, religion. Religion creates a very fragile, a very fragile holiness. Because at the heart of that religion is that you have to perform. You have to earn God's favor by living a very good life, which that creates a very fragile sense of holiness. It creates a very fragile self-esteem, really, because you're never sure that, you've done, uh, that you're doing well enough. Okay? There's an insecurity inherent in religion. So you have to stay away from the defiled because they might defile you. You've got to put up barriers to keep you away from sinful people. You have to build walls that don't allow uh, those people to, to get in. But did you notice here, in verse 15, did you notice that it's not just Jesus who's eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Did you notice? Who else is there? It's Jesus, the tax collectors, the sinners, and who else? His disciples. His disciples. Why? Why? Because once you've been healed by Jesus, once he's made you clean on the spot, without any codes without any regulations, without all sorts of lists of, of don'ts and, and all of that, you can move out into the world differently. 
You can move out into the world with the same non-condescending confidence that Jesus had. That just as through his contact with other people, his love and grace could infect them, right, and undefile them. Just as Jesus could do that, so through your love and grace, the same thing can happen. You reach out to people. You're not afraid of them anymore. You're not afraid of them uh, contaminating you. You're not defined by your neighbors. You're not defined by them. It's not, it's not well, you know, who, you're defined by who you hang around with. If that's true, then Jesus, Jesus was a tax collector and sinner. No, Jesus was, uh, Jesus was the holy one. He was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. And yet he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. There's an old story. Some of you, some of you probably have heard this story uh, uh, before. Uh, for some of you, it'll be a brand new story. Tony Campolo. Anybody know the name Tony Campolo? Okay, so Tony Campolo, few of you know him. Tony Campolo, he's a sociologist, he's a pastor, he's an author, public speaker, uh, very, uh, you know, very high in demand. Uh, he, he once told the story of a time that he had flown into Honolulu, and it was late at night, he wasn't able to sleep. And so he went to an all-night diner close to his hotel, and at the table next to him, there were a group of prostitutes sitting there. Okay, it's the middle of the night. A group of prostitutes sitting there. And he heard them talking. Okay? And one of the prostitutes mentioned to the other girls that the next day was her 39th birthday party. Her, her 39th birthday. I should say it that way. Her 39th birthday. And another one of the prostitutes asked her kind of harshly, what do you want, a birthday party? And the girl sort of retreated into her defensive shell and she said, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why would I expect one now? Well, it struck Tony that it would be like a great idea to conspire with the owner of the diner the next night to throw this uh, prostitute a surprise birthday party. And so uh, Tony paid for the, you know, all the stuff. The cake, a cake was baked, and they bought, you know, streamers and balloons and, you know, all sorts of stuff, and everything was prepared. And when she came into the diner that night, as was part of her nightly ritual, everyone in the diner, including her girlfriends, just, they just shouted, happy birthday! And they sang, you know, happy birthday to her. And she was stunned. And she started to cry. And as Everybody, you know, ate the cake. There was still cake left over, and she'd never had a birthday cake made for her. And, and she asked if she could take the cake home with her. And, of course, they, you know, they gave it to her. And, and after she left, Campolo, Tony Campolo offered to, to lead the group in a, in a prayer. And the prayer startled the owner. And he asked antagonistically, uh, he said, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo responded like this. He said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Um, would that we would become that kind of church. That understand that the gospel doesn't erect barriers, it destroys barriers. It isn't worried about who we're going to be contaminated by, 
because we understand that his grace and his power is more powerful. His grace and his love is more powerful than all the sin in the world. Would that we would become that kind of church. You see, when you encounter Jesus, when you come into contact with the gospel, you can't help but live a great life, a noble life, a big life, because it tears down all of the walls that separate people, that once separated you from people, and that now separate other people from one another. The gospel just tears down walls. I want to wrap up with this, verse 18. Verse 18. Uh, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and they asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now I want you to write this down, okay? Religion is defined, religion is defined by my righteousness, Where the gospel is defined by Christ's righteousness. I'll explain this, but let me just say it again. Religion is defined by my righteousness, where the gospel is defined by Christ's righteousness. Now, what is Jesus saying when he uses this illustration of the bridegroom? There's great significance in that. I don't have time to go into all of it. But let me just summarize it with this. Here's the deal. Judaism, as led and practiced by the Pharisees, had devolved into this meritorious system in which the extent of your sacrifice earns you favor with God. So fasting, not eating, was a perfect example of that. The more hunger I feel, uh, the more I sacrifice, the more pain I put myself through, the more drawn my face looks by my obvious hunger, the more God and others will be impressed by my righteousness and therefore be persuaded to bless me. Now, I'm going to just parenthesis, parenthesis here for a moment. I'm going to ask those of you who've been in churches, how many times have you been asked when there's some big issue comes up in the church, how many times have you been asked to fast and pray? As if your prayer wouldn't be enough. God wouldn't really be interested in answering your prayer because this is such a big issue, such a serious issue, that now you have to fast to show him how sincere, how dedicated, how much you want this. He'll be persuaded by your fasting. How many of you have been in a church that asked you to do that, to fast and pray? How many? How many? Raise your hands. Go ahead. Come on. Let me tell you something. That's not the gospel. That's not that is not the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that it's, that it's wrong to fast. There are some good reasons to fast, but not to earn God's favor, not to, get God, not to persuade God to be more interested in blessing you or in answering your prayer. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, if you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, prayer, prayer alone. God, is, God longs to bless you. He longs to answer your prayers. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to convince him by fasting uh, to answer your prayers. He's ready to do it. He's ready to answer your prayers. Okay, Okay. now that's the end of that parenthesis. Here we go. Uh, this whole fasting earns, uh, uh, impresses God and earns favor with God. Uh, that's, that's the very essence of religion. You see, it's all about Here it is. It's all about self-achievement. It's all about self-validation. It's all about self-righteousness. You have to save yourself 
by your performance. God isn't going to do it for you. You have to do it by your performance. Okay? But the gospel says something completely different. The gospel says that human righteousness has never been, ever been impressive to God no matter the extent of the sacrifice. In fact, Isaiah the prophet gives us God's assessment of human righteousness. Isaiah 64, he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's what God thinks of your righteousness, that it's like filthy rags. In other words, add up all the sacrifices you've made in your life, no matter how extreme, no matter how great, no matter how humanly impressive, and the sum total of your righteousness is zero. Uh, Look at that, zero. Say it with me, zero. That's the sum total of your righteousness. Zero. Say it again. Zero. That's the sum total of your righteousness. You never did drugs growing up? Great. Zero righteousness. You didn't have sex before marriage? Great. Zero righteousness. You didn't go to public school? You stayed away from all of the bad influences of public education? Great. Zero righteousness for you. Zero. None. Zero righteousness. You understand that? You have none. You have zero righteousness. This explains, you see, why Jesus only said to Levi, follow me, instead of Levi, go without food for a month or make a trip to Mecca, or cut off your right hand, or practice meditation, simplicity, and quietness, and then you will be worthy of following me. When Jesus said, follow me to Levi, let me ask you something. When somebody says, follow them, what does that mean? You're going to follow them to a particular destination, am I correct? Isn't that what it means? Okay. Where was Jesus headed when he said to Levi, follow me? Where was he headed? Well, he was headed to the cross. That's where Jesus wanted Levi to follow him to, the cross. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in this metaphor in which he describes himself as a bridegroom. And he says says in this little description, in this little metaphor, he says the bridegroom will be taken away. There's going to be a day where the bridegroom will be taken away. What he's alluding to there is the cross. At the cross, the only righteous one would die for the sins of the unrighteous. There, at the cross, Levi would be healed. Where the one who knew no sin became sin. Where Christ became an outcast, despised. Where by his stripes, Levi and you and I and all of humanity can be healed through belief in him. And then, as a result of that belief in him, his righteousness is given to me. I am clothed with it. In other words, I have zero righteousness. But when I believe in Christ, all of his righteousness, the sum total of all of his righteousness, is all of a sudden put on me. And then now I have his righteousness. But it's not my righteousness. It's all his righteousness. And that changes everything. You can't help but live a huge life when you really understand the significance of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Now think about this. Everyone in the world world. Everyone in the world, even if they're not religious per se, they all live their lives with the pressure of having to validate themselves, to prove themselves, to perform for their worth. For some, it's by their success. For some, it's by their bank accounts. For some, it's who they're married to. Uh, For some, it's the country club they belong to. For some, it's the street they live on. For some, it's their accomplishments. For some, it's their IQ. For some, it's their knowledge. But for the person who understands the gospel, who really gets it, who really takes it in, who understands this thing about Christ's righteousness being given to them, 
Well, it changes everything. Life for you changes. You no longer have to live your life like that. You no longer have to live trying to outperform everyone because you have been validated by the only one who can ever validate anyone. That's what it means to be given Christ's righteousness. You've been given the ultimate validation. You don't go out into the world anymore with that fragile, self-achieving, self-image where you have to walk around as if it's like a mean vase or something. You're always afraid that it's going to get broken by someone who's, who's done more or achieved more or who looks down their nose at you or who you find yourself having to look up to. You don't have to live like that anymore. You move out into the world knowing that in him you are clothed with his righteousness, his worth, his validation, which frees you then to take risks, to not have to worry about failure, to be able to make mistakes, knowing that it's his righteousness, not yours, that commends you to God. And that's freeing. That's why Jesus says here in this metaphor, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast and mourn when the bridegroom is with them? They can't. Because they're having so much fun. They're so joyful because of, what his, because of his presence in their lives. There is this rejoicing, you see, when you understand how you've been freed from the pressure of self-validation. It changes your life. It expands your life. Your life can't help but become bigger when you understand the gospel. Fear is driven away by the power of the gospel. And when a church begins to understand the gospel, it becomes the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I wrote an article in the paper about uh, six or seven weeks ago. It was right after the whole big thing with the RFRA deal here in Indiana. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Nod your heads. Just let me know you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, of course, the debate was, you know, whether, whether a, uh, a bakery or a pizza owner or something, like if, if, if uh, a gay couple wanted them to do a wedding, would you bake a cake for a gay couple? Would you be able to, you know, uh, serve pizza at the wedding uh, if you were uh, a pizza owner? And uh, I wrote in that article, I said, you know, uh, if I were a Christian baker, uh, I could absolutely bake a cake for a gay wedding. And if I were uh, a Christian pizza owner, I could absolutely make pizza for a gay wedding. Now, I would never do a gay wedding, okay, as a pastor. I'd never do a gay wedding. But I could absolutely bake cake, bake a cake for one. Now, as long as they didn't ask me to, to write on the cake, like, you know, hooray for gay marriage, I could, I, could, I could absolutely bake a cake for a gay wedding. Why? Well, it's, it's for the very reason that Jesus came into our world. I, I'm always amazed when Christians are so quick to stand on principle about everything. Like, like we draw the lines and we're, I'm going to stand on principle rather than baking a cake for some people. Rather than making a pizza for some I don't agree with everything they do. My baking a cake or making pizza for their wedding, it doesn't endorse everything they're doing. It's just, I'm serving them. And I, and I think about this. I think, what if God, what if God would have had the same perspective? What if he would have said, 
What if he would have said, look, I'm standing on principle. You guys blew it. I don't agree with your lives. I'm not coming into your world. I will not do it. What if he just stood on principle? Why do we think that standing on principle is what pleases God so much about us? Uh, Why would we think that moving into their lives wouldn't please God more? Even if it means taking a risk. You know what? Somebody there might misunderstand my intentions if I'm there at the wedding. If I bake the, if I bake the cake or make the pizza, somebody might misunderstand my intentions. Just like people call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Someone might un- misunderstand my intentions. But guess what? I've been freed by Jesus Christ to go into people's lives. And here's the thing. Their sin doesn't contaminate me. In fact, it's very possible that my love and grace, even with people with whom I don't agree with the decision that they're making, perhaps my love and grace will infect them with a love for Jesus Christ. Perhaps. That's what, that's what the gospel frees us to do. It frees us to be the kind of people that could serve a, that could hold a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30, bake a cake for a gay couple. And love people that the rest of the world would never love. And that religious people would generally say, you don't, there's, there's no room for you. There's no room for you here. That's what the gospel does. Jesus was taken away when he was crucified for three days. And those were three long days of mourning and sadness. And as a result, people who were so sad, so sick to their stomachs over what had happened to Jesus that they couldn't eat. But on the third day, he arose. And for all who believe in him, the bridegroom is with you. And there is rejoicing once again. And once you get a hold of the significance of that, of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, would you create in us as a church the kind of conviction that was present in those first century Christians who were martyred for their faith in you, who would rather be burned at a stake than give up um, their allegiance to you. Lord, would you give us that kind of conviction? Lord, would you create in us, through the power of the gospel, big lives, huge lives, passion Uh, passionate lives, uh, lives that are willing to give away, to sacrifice, uh, not for your, uh, not to earn anything before you, but instead uh, to show you, to to, to show our love for you um, and to serve other people. Lord, would you give us the ability as a church, just through the power of the gospel, make us the kind of church that would make cakes for, and and bake Uh, and hold birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Lord, would you make us that kind of a church? 
Lord, there are principles that we are to stand for. There is a line that we can't go any further than, and we know that, and, and Lord, we want to honor that, but at the same time, we want to go as far out as we could go, all the way up to that line, to reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you let us be the kind of church that infects other people with you and with your grace. And Lord, it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.